Greetings, everybody. This is week two of In Homes, and I'm so glad that you guys have all joined us. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. But before we do that, let me just pray uh, before we dig into the message. And so, Lord, we do welcome you into this time and into this space. And God, we, we just ask you to come and have your way. Lord, as we open your word and as we, as we worship you today, God, I pray that your voice would speak to us or that we would hear you, that you would be present with us. And God, I pray that you would put your words in my mouth, that, that the things that I say would be pleasing in your sight. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's just dive in. Have you ever watched uh, a, an interview after the end of, of a sports championship? I'm a big fan of hockey. And so at the end of the Stanley Cup Finals, somebody wins the cup, sticks are everywhere, gloves are everywhere, helmets are everywhere. Everybody's super excited. And there's this time before they bring the cup out onto the ice. They got to set everything up. And so uh, they start to interview the players and, and, and they go player to player and sweat. You know, there's just hair everywhere and it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But then they get to this place, they just start interviewing these players. And there's this common thread through most of the interviews. And this happens in every sporting event. Like I've seen it in basketball, I've seen it in football, all these things, right? The same thing happens. They get into the interview they're like, what's it like to win? And then how did you do it? And what they always say is, you know, we overcame a lot of adversity. We came together as a team and we, we really fought through adversity. And, and I think you can tell we're stronger because we went through all of this adversity. It's a common thread. And, you know, there's something about adversity or, or opposition that, that I think causes you to discover who, who you are and what's inside of you. And it helps you to become someone stronger. And so that's why sports teams who win championships always go through some sort of adversity because they, it's made them who they are. It's made them the kind of team that could win the championship. I wonder if you've ever thought about that in relation to faith in Jesus. Have you ever thought about adversity and overcoming and facing adversity within the context of faith in Jesus? Like for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, have you ever thought about what it would be like to be a follower of Jesus and experience adversity. Maybe that's one of the things that has kept you from relationship with Jesus. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, have you ever considered what it would be like if somebody stood against you and per pursued you and, and pushed into your faith uh, with, with some opposition? Have you ever thought about what that would be like? Have you ever thought about whether or not you would have enough faith to stand in the face of adversity? And that's the question I want you to think about today. Would you have the faith to stand in the face of ad adversity and opposition and persecution? Or would you not? How would you know? We've been in this short three-week series in John 15. It's going to end today. Next week, we'll, we'll begin a new series. But I want to recap real briefly where we've been in John 15. The very beginning, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And basically, he says, you're the branches that remain in the vine, and as you remain in the vine, you will bear fruit. So Jesus says, you're going to bear fruit to the degree you stay in me. And so we talked about this at the very beginning, that what Jesus is saying is, bearing fruit is more disciples. That to bear fruit is to have more people come into relationship with Jesus. To have more people experience the salvation that is offered through Christ. 
This is what it is to bear fruit. That this whole John 15 passage is a missional passage. Whatever else you might think it is, it's a missional passage. And so last week we talked about what would it what what happens? How does that actually work that that we remain in Christ and that more people come into the kingdom? And I said the way people come into the kingdom is by how we love each other. That there's something in the way that we love each other that causes people to be compelled into relationship with Jesus and into relationship with the church. That this is the way this works. It's how we love each other. And so this whole context of mission builds to today, which is week three of this series. And we're going to talk about, in the context of mission, persecution. What happens when we're persecuted for faith? And so we're going to look today, if you have your Bible, you can turn John chapter 15. We're going to begin uh, in verse 18. So John 15, beginning in verse 18. And here's what we're going to read. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. If they treat you this way, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Verse 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. This is is Jesus kind of bringing this to a, a big crescendo. And he says that as a disciple, you can expect to be hated. He says, in fact, that as a disciple, you can expect to be persecuted, that this is what we have coming to us as disciples of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but this passage always sticks out to me, very much like a sore thumb. And I think part of the reason, and maybe you would would agree with this, part of the reason it sticks out is because that's not my experience. Is it for you? Like, Is that your experience, that faith in Jesus has caused you to be hated or persecuted? I think in the American church, that's not really been my experience. In fact, we don't talk about it in the American church all that much because in America to be persecuted for faith is really not very frequent occurrence. It doesn't happen that much. In fact, uh, Peter Kucemich, uh, he was from Croatia. He's a professor and a theologian at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He said this, he said, so much popular Western evangelical religiosity is so shallow and selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. 
It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, holy lifestyle, and a willingness to die for Christ. I mean, when I think about persecution for faith in Jesus, I have this really, it's a weird image that always comes to mind. As soon as somebody says being persecuted for faith in Jesus, I have the same thought all the time. It's of this guy, he's like about this tall, he's got dark hair and real like these glasses that have thick, they're thick frames. And he's standing in the face of someone who doesn't know Jesus. He's waving a Bible at them and he's yelling at them. And, and he's disrespectful and he's just being very rude and saying, you're going to burn in hell. And in response, of course, you know, this non-Christian just punches him right in the nose. And he falls to the ground and he stands up and he says, I've been persecuted with Christ. And that's the image that comes to my mind. I don't know if you have an image or not, but that's how I think about it. When someone says persecution for Christ, that's what I think of. It's this real weird image. And I have a hard time really getting my head around being rude and disrespectful in the name of Jesus. I just have a real hard time with it. But uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was the great preacher from the 1800s, he said this. He said, look to it, Christian people, that if you are persecuted, it's for righteousness sake. For if you get any persecution yourself, you must keep it yourself. And what he's saying is, if you get punched in the nose for being a jerk, even though you're a Christian, you earned that one. That's not on Jesus. It's the heart of what Jesus is saying. Christians shouldn't be persecuted because they're jerks. Christians should be persecuted because they're connected to Christ. That it's righteousness that causes persecution. Look again with me at verse 18. It says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. He says the world will hate you, not because you're rude or mean or disrespectful, but because you don't belong there. Because the way you live your life doesn't look like anything normal to them. Verse 21, he says, they will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. It says they, they don't know Jesus. They don't know the Father. So they will treat you poorly because of them. Because they didn't recognize the Father. They didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus says the reason you're going to experience persecution, persecution, the reason people will hate you is because of me. It's because you have how you live by remaining in Christ. It's by the fruit that's born out of a life that's that's completely attached to the vine. It's because of how you're able to demonstrate the character of God. It's how you demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that people will hate you. It's how the beauty of your life shines in the darkness of the world. It's how you demonstrate salvation to the world. In fact, there's a, a really good uh, image in Shakespeare's play, Othello, uh, if you're familiar with it. Uh, there's a good line. Uh, one of the characters, Iago, is, is describing another character, Cassio, and he says this. He says, he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. That's a picture of what this causes, of how persecution gets caused for those who follow Jesus. It's the natural produce of a life lived in Christ. You will be hated 
you will be persecuted. Friends, is this the experience of your life? Do you experience people? I mean, we live in America. Let's be real honest here, right? We live in America. Most of you have probably never had any physical violence against you for faith in Jesus, right? Most of us probably fall in that, that ca- uh, category Spurgeon was talking about. We earned our own licks, right? We, we probably got punched for our own things, not necessarily for Jesus in America. But have you, has it ever cost you anything to follow Jesus? Has anyone ever opposed you because you follow Jesus? Have you ever stood up for someone who's outcast or marginalized, not because it was going to be popular, but because you believe that everyone is made in the image of God? Have you ever stood up at work against some some dishonesty because even though we were all going to go along with it, you recognize dishonesty is not the way that you're supposed to live as a follower of Jesus. You know it's not popular, but you're standing up for honesty anyway. Have you ever done that? Have you ever uh, said no to a job or more hours or a different shift just because of how it would impact your relationship with Jesus? Have you ever done that? Any place where you say yes to Jesus ahead of what the world says is important is bound to cause friction, and it's going to cause people to dislike you. Have you ever had to pay a cost to follow Jesus? Your daily life shines dark light in the darkness. The beauty of your life makes the world feel ugly. Have you ever been in that place? People won't like you, and certainly it's going to cost you money. It's probably going to cost you people who you thought were friends. It'll cost you relationships. Perhaps people will go out of their way to make sure you don't get promoted because you're that Christian guy who's not going to lie. Maybe people will go out of their way to slander you. Has it ever cost you anything to follow Jesus? Because Jesus says you will experience persecution. I mean, if you're like me, though, something inside of you, like, stirs up at this, right? Like, here's what I want to do. I want to take the Bible and go, well, certainly Jesus said something else somewhere, right? That that uh, that says, well, you know, in, in the 21st century, persecution won't be a real thing. But there's no passage like that, like right? Like, all of us, we want to sort of protect ourselves, and we don't like the idea that it might hurt to follow Jesus. I don't know about you, I don't like it when people don't like me. So the thought of people not liking me because of Jesus is really hard for me, but there's there's no option here. There's no way to remain in Christ and not experience persecution. It is not optional. Do you remember how this whole section started like three weeks ago? Do you remember how this started? Here's what Jesus, I'll remind you. Jesus says this, he says, I am the true vine, And my father is the gardener. Check. No problem. Got it? Verse 2 says this. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. If you remember what I said about that is, Jesus doesn't have in mind here people who are not Christians. He's saying these are people who are in the vine who bear no fruit. Do you pick up what he's saying here? He says, either you stay in me and bear fruit and experience persecution, or you bear no fruit and you're cut off by the father. Jesus draws the lines real narrow here. Stay in Christ, bear fruit, experience persecution, or bear no fruit and be cut off. These are the options. And if that makes you feel anxious, it probably makes some of us feel anxious, right? If that thought makes you feel anxious, it may be because you've never counted the cost of following Christ. 
that there's an actual cost to following Jesus. You know, a few weeks ago, we baptized a couple guys. You remember that? Uh, we had this nice baptism outside. And uh, when we baptized these guys, I said this, I said, every time we have a baptism, when you go under the water, you are symbolizing that I am dead to my old life. I am dead. I died. And now Jesus is in charge. The life I now live is lived under the command of Jesus. We are loose change in Jesus' pocket. He can spend us however he likes. And if that's uncomfortable to you, it's maybe because you never have taken stock of this. You see, we baptize people not as a religious exercise. I pray that all the time, that this would not be a religious exercise. We're saying something real when we do baptism. There's a real thing that we're saying here. We're saying our lives are not our own. That we have died and we're, we now live in Christ. We symbolize death in baptism, at least in part because it represents, as best as we know how, what may actually be true of our lives if we follow Jesus. If we remain in Christ, the idea of us going underwater is to say, I'm dead, and if I have to die for real, that's okay. That's what we're saying when we get baptized. What we say to the world is, I no longer live for myself. If it troubles you that people may hurt you or mistreat you or hate you or kill you for faith in Jesus, it's likely because you've never taken stock of what you said when you were baptized. Whether you knew it or not, that's what you were saying. You were saying, my life is not my own and I may be asked to give it. You know, all around the world, people understand that this is what's happening. Uh, in predominantly mu uh, Muslim countries around the world, when people give their lives to Jesus and they go to be baptized into Christ, they know that they're just rehearsing for what very likely may be the fate of their lives. We're going underwater this time. It'll be under the dirt next time. As a martyr for Christ, we know that that's what's happening around the world. But we in America, a lot of times, we don't know that. That's what we're saying. We're practicing for when we're actually martyred. In his book, uh, The Cross of Christ, John Stott, uh, he's an author I really, really appreciate, was a pastor in England. He said, every form of mission leads to some form of cross. The very shape of mission is cruciform. We can understand mission only in terms of the cross. Persecution is not optional as a follower of Jesus. There's no Jesus-following life that doesn't expose you to persecution. So, last point I want to make, the last thing I want to talk about is like, as you think about this, maybe you're like I am, I go, well, what kind of a person would do this anyway? Like, what kind of a person would sign up for this kind of a life? I don't know if you watch, like, as, as you get past chapter 16 and into chapter 17, Jesus wraps up this little uh, talk that he's giving to his disciples, and right after that, he's arrested. And he's, he goes and he's being tried and eventually he's crucified. And the very disciples that he says this to, they scatter. And then they lock themselves in a house for fear that they too will be killed for following Jesus. These are the guys that he said, hey, this is coming. Do you, do you catch the irony in that? They just said that. They just heard Jesus say, you're going to be persecuted. A couple days later, they're hiding in a house so that they're not persecuted. So these guys are terrified. And yet they come out of this house 
to boldly proclaim Jesus, most of, most of them to their own death for faith in Jesus. What changes somebody like that? Why would you sign up for that? A little bit further, Acts 6, you see Stephen, he's a leader in the early church, and uh, Stephen is, is, is apprehended by some Jewish people who go to question him, and he begins to defend his faith in Jesus. And at the end of chapter 7, they're lumping him with stones to death, and he says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What would cause someone to do this? Why would you sign up for this? A little bit later, uh, James, the brother of John, is killed in, in Acts. As you get further on in, the ch in church history in the, in the 60s, the followers of Jesus sign up to follow Jesus knowing that odds are pretty good they're going to be killed for their faith. Then you get a little bit further in, in Christian history, and, and as people are being killed for their faith, a guy by the name of Tertullian gives his life to Jesus because of what it looks like when the Christians give their lives for Jesus. Fast forward a little bit further, Polycarp, who was a father in the early church, he was the last one who knew uh, John, the apostle, and Polycarp says that the, or he gets arrested, and as Polycarp is being dragged off, to be killed for his faith, the Romans say, if you'll just renounce your faith in Jesus and instead worship Caesar, we'll let you off. Otherwise, we're going to burn you alive. And here's what Polycarp says. He says, 86 years I have served him and he's done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was set on fire and then stabbed for faith in Jesus. Why would he do that? I mean, why would anyone do that? If you're considering faith in Jesus, why would you sign up for this knowing what you know? Why should I and you, why should we continue to follow Jesus knowing that it may very well cost us our lives? Why would we do that? Why would anyone do that? Why should you stand up for the marginalized even though it's unpopular? Why should you challenge dishonesty even if it's unpopular? Why should you share your faith in Jesus with someone else knowing they may not care? Why would anyone do this? Why not just live a marginalized life that ensures that you won't be persecuted? I'll tell you why. Because you're convinced Jesus is who he says he is, that he has saved you, that he is from the Lord, that he is from God. Here's what uh, Peter says in John chapter 6, and I think this, these are the words, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You stand in faith because you have experienced the salvation and the goodness of God. You stand in faith because he has given you a life you've never deserved. You stand in faith in persecution because Jesus says he will be with you in persecution. And you stand in faith in Jesus because you are convinced that because God raised him from the dead on the third day, you too will be raised. That's the hope. The way you stand in persecution, the reason you stand in persecution is because you know that even if it costs you your life now, the resurrection from the dead means you too will be raised with Christ. That's good news. 
That's good news. John, at the end of the end of the Bible, he writes in Revelation, he has this vision from God that he writes down to the churches. And in Revelation chapter 12, he's talking about how the martyrs defeat Satan. And here's what he says in Revelation chapter 12. He says, they triumphed over him, that's Satan, by the blood of the lamb, that's Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. They joined their word with the, the word of the Holy Spirit. And catch this. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That the way we triumph over the enemy is by not loving our lives so much that we wouldn't give them for the sake of Christ. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the way the church goes forward is because people don't love their lives more than they love Christ. Is that true of you? 